Well, good morning. Good to see you all here. We're in the book of Hebrews this morning. And we'll be looking specifically at verses uh, Hebrews 7. And we'll look at verses 23 through 28, the end of the chapter. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 23. Actually, let's begin in 22. Start 22. Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 22, where it it speaks of Jesus being the guarantor of a better covenant. And here's why. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Amen. Thus far, God's word. Well, over the last month, we've been asking ourselves the question, what child is this? I mean, what child is this whose birthday we annually celebrate, whose uh, death divides human history, at least by way of our calendar, into two different eras, whose legacy includes the world's largest religion? What child is this? Well, Jason Oakes uh, began this series by uh, reminding us of what this child is not. And he did that at some length. The following couple of weeks, Eric Tonis and Junior Jamrianvit then told us who this child is. Namely, a son of God who, as Eric showed us from Colossians chapter 1, came down from heights greater than we could imagine. And son of man, who, as Junior showed us from Philippians 2, condescended to depths lower than we can take in. And then Fred Sanders explained the following week from John 1 the manner in which this child was revealed. Uh, that is, he was revealed in the flesh. And we sing about that at Christmas time, don't we? Uh, uh, Lord of Lords in human vesture, uh, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. And by taking on flesh, God, in a sense, wrote himself into our human story. Uh, C.S. Lewis describes it like this. If Shakespeare and Hamlet could ever meet, it must be Shakespeare's doing, right? The author. Shakespeare could, in principle, make himself appear as author within the play and 
write a dialogue between Hamlet and himself. The Shakespeare within the play would, of course, be at once Shakespeare and one of Shakespeare's creatures. Lewis concludes, concludes, this bears some analogy to the incarnation. So what child is this? Son of God, son of man, revealed in flesh, written right in to our human story, so that, as Darren Early told us last week from 1 John 4, he might save us from our sins. And Darren helpfully explained that the Savior had to be fully man, since it was man and woman who owed the debt, but the Savior had to be fully God, since he was the only one able to pay that debt. Which brings us to the final thing at which we'll look and answer to the question, what child is this? And it's this. He is the great high priest. The great high priest. And the importance of which is this. If this child is not, is not the last and the greatest high priest, then really, he's of no value to us. Yeah, he may be the incarnate son of God. He, he may well be the savior of mankind. But the only way those things work for us are, are of any benefit to us is if he is also the great high priest, which begs the question, what is a priest? When I ask you that question, uh, what is a priest? Rhetorical one, by the way. Um, what, what, what comes to your mind? Maybe it's an image. Maybe as unsanctified as, as the first thing that came to my mind, which was the uh, impressive clergyman in The Princess Bride. Remember him with his big head? Marriage is what brings us here today. But if uh, more than likely, you probably had the, the image of a Christian priest, be it Catholic or Anglican or Orthodox, you know, sporting the mitre hat and the Roman collar and the cassock coat. But whenever I think of, you know, the, those long coats that priests wear, I think of Monsignor Gilb over at Our Lady of Perpetual Help there at like Slauson in Norwalk. And uh, <clears throat> when I was a funeral director in Uptown Whittier, I can remember doing services with Monsignor Gilb, and he'd come out in that cassock coat, solid black, but for a thin line of red. And then one day, we got in the funeral coach to head out to the cemetery, and he unbuttoned it, and he took it off, and it's entirely lined with scarlet satin. <laughs> that was an impressive priest. I coveted that coat. I shouldn't admit to that, but I thought, wow, that is nice. So maybe that's the kind of priest that you think of. Or maybe you think of a Jewish priest. I mean, some guy right out of the Bible with the linen turban and the tunic and the trousers, along with a, a, a robe and an ephod and a breastplate. Now, those are certainly images that capture what a priest looks like, but you may also think of what a priest does. And in short, what a priest does is mediate. 
facilitate. Uh, he's a go-between. He's a bridge builder. He gets you someplace that you could not have otherwise gotten, which means a priest can be something other than religious. So you're 10 years old. You may have a few 10-year-olds in here this morning, and you're playing at your friend's house, and the two of you decide you want to have a sleepover. Well, you have no prerogative to go to the parents of your friend and ask to do that. So your friend acts as a priest, a mediator, a go-between, and gets you someplace that you could not have otherwise gotten into their house, into your friend's room for the whole night. Um, Over the course of my life, I've been inside the golden-domed uh, Mosque of Omar, uh, the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. I, I don't think you can get in there anymore. I've not only been in there, I've been to the very uh, deepest part of that structure. I've been to the office of a presidential cabinet member, in fact, the largest uh, office of any presidential cabinet member. I sat courtside at uh, the old stadium in Chicago during the uh, Michael Jordan era Bulls. In fact, I, I sat right on the wood and I was about as far as I am from here to that lectern watching Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen warm up. There's no way I could have been there or sat on that floor or been in that office or been in the Dome of the Rock without a priest, a mediator. A go-between, somebody who could get me there. And when it comes to this campus, I'm a part of a priesthood. Uh, a priesthood by virtue of, well, there's our chief priest right there, Jim Clark. By virtue of our keys and the alarm code, <laughs> without which none of you could be in this room this morning, uh, East Sanctuary on Tuesday morning for prayer, A2 for a, a meeting midweek, and most especially uh, the bathroom in the A building, which is the code for which I'm asked most often. And that way I mediate uh, relief for people who uh, need to use that room. So when we think of a priest in that way, it's easier to understand what Jewish priests did. They were go-betweens. They were mediators. They bridged the gap between sinful men and a holy God, which begs the question, how did they do it? How did they do it? How did priests bridge that gap? They didn't do it because of who they were, because they, like us, uh, even though priests are sinful and perfect, Rather, they bridged the gap between God and man according to how they went about it. Ways prescribed by God that set them apart from other people. So they um, all came out of a particular tribe. They all dressed in a particular fashion. They all lived in a particular manner. They all carried out particular functions, the main one being the sacrifice for sins, 
their own sins first, then the sins of the people, and they did this by way of daily sacrifices as well as annual sacrifices, most of which were blood sacrifices. And this went on from generation to generation to generation, thereby maintaining this bridge between man and God, an agreement that, while serviceable, was nonetheless imperfect and pointed to the need for something better. Which brings us to our passage for this morning. I was just talking to Maxine down here about the book of Hebrews, and if it's anything, it shows how Jesus was better than everything that pointed to him, that, that signaled his coming back in the Old Testament. Jesus was better than the prophets. He was better than Moses, the greatest prophet. He was better than any and every priest who ever lived. In Hebrews 7, well, really all through the book, we were reading from Hebrews 2 earlier, but Hebrews 7 especially explains why Jesus was better than every priest. In verses 23 through 28, the ones at which we looked, um, we see that uh, for this reason. He was immortal. He was immortal. Uh, Take a look at verse 24. He continues forever. Verse 25, he always lives. Verse 28, he's perfect forever. As opposed to the Old Testament priests who were shackled by their mortality. Take a look at verse 23. They were prevented by death from continuing in office. Verse 27, they were prisoners of time and guilty of sin. Verse 28, even at their best, they were weak. So if we sum it all up, the child at whom we've been looking grew up to be a priest better than every other priest that ever lived. And because of these two reasons, because of his length of service, which is eternal, and the quality of his service, which is perfect. We'll see both those things in this passage here this morning. In fact, we're going to give our our remaining time to looking at these couple of things. The first one which, uh, of which is uh, the length of Jesus' service, which is eternal. See, until Jesus' death was the master of every priest. Priesthood began with Aaron, uh, the brother of Moses, that's Exodus 28. Uh, Moses suited him up according to God's specifications. But there came a day when Aaron's priesthood ended. In fact, Moses said to his brother, hey, uh, let's take a hike up to the top of Mount Hor and bring your son Eleazar along. They get to the top of the hill. Moses divests Aaron of his priestly garments, puts them on Eleazar, and subsequent to that, Aaron dies right up there on Mount Hor. So Eleazar is now the priest for a long time, but not in perpetuity because one day Eliezer dies and so his son Phineas becomes the priest and so on and so on and so on and so on. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, there were 83 high priests 
from Aaron to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. But the Talmud indicates that there were even more, well over 300 high priests, all of whom met the same end, death. Now, while Old Testament priests and New Testament pastors are not analogous roles, I had been thinking about their common bond of mortality. No doubt there were many beloved priests whose long and happy tenures ended with their death and many mourning people. Same has been true of beloved pastors down through the ages. I think of the one under whom I grew up, uh, Burl Lindley, founded Granada Heights Friends Church just two big blocks away from us back in 1955. Uh, faithfully served there for many years, so many years that in 1962, he uh, dedicated my little brother and then from that same place presided over his memorial service in 2007. So Verl was the, the consummate shepherd for many years, generations uh, for many families. But after 39 years of service, Verl finally retired. And then 23 years after that, Verl died, leaving many aching hearts. A George Truitt became pastor of First Baptist Dallas in 1897, where he famously grew that beloved flock from 700 people, really about the size of Grace, a little smaller than Grace, to um, over 7,000. And he did that over the course of 47 years. He was the pastor there for almost a half century. But he died and left many mourners in his wake. How do you follow George Truitt? Well, in God's providence, W.A. Criswell followed. And, and he took that church from 7,000 to over 25,000 people. And he remained on that staff for 58 years. I mean, we stop and think about it. Between Criswell and Truitt, they pastored that church, the two of them, for over a century. But Criswell finally died. And when he did, he was so beloved by the city of Dallas that they closed a portion of US 75 to accommodate the long line of mourners in his funeral procession. There are some ministers who seem, and that's the operative word, seem, seem like they're just gonna go on forever. John MacArthur's been at Grace Church in Sun Valley for 55 years. Dick Lucas has served at St. Helens Bishopsgate in London for 62 years. He's 98 years old and maintains an active teaching ministry. 98. A couple of weeks ago, I read about a fella named D.N. Benford. He accepted a call to be a pastor at Rising Star Missionary Baptist Church in Texas City, Texas in 1950. And last month, he began his 74th year as the pastor of that church. Now, I don't mean to be maudlin here, but uh, last January during a staff elder retreat, I, I went around the circle and I asked each guy, how old are you going to be in 2030? Um, bottom line, none of us are getting any younger. 
And someday we'll be as well known to the Grace family as Louis Hohenstein and Wayne Barr and Curtis Heffelfinger, all of whom were beloved pastors of this congregation in former generations. But here's the thing. Gratefully, the departure or the death of a New Testament pastor doesn't jeopardize the integrity of the bridge between his congregation and God. But the departure or death of an Old Testament beloved high priest could, depending on who his successor happened to be and how he went on to manage that bridge between God and man. Case in point, Eli, faithful high priest for 40 years in Israel, was succeeded uh, by his son, actually a couple of sons who were just the opposite of him, greedy, lecherous, and their sins seep down into the soil of Israel's soul. Gratefully, Jesus conquered death. He's not going away. He has secured an entirely uninterrupted priesthood. Remember, he continues forever. He always lives. He's perfect forever. Therefore, verse 24, he holds his priesthood permanently. Verse 25, always making intercession for those who draw near to God through him, thereby making Jesus now and forever the bridge between God and man. So what child is this? He's a permanent high priest. Old Testament priests could only be counted on no matter how beloved they were for as long as they lived. But Jesus lives forever. Therefore, the bridge between man and God always open. No matter the time, the place, the condition in which one finds himself, herself, even this morning. There is a wide open way to God by way of Jesus, who always intercedes for us. And this is why Martin Luther could write, did we in our own strength confined, uh, confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it's he, Lord Sabaoth, or Lord of hosts, Lord of heaven's armies. That's his name from age to age the same. Always there. But it doesn't end there. Not only is Jesus a better priest because the length of his service is eternal, he's a better priest because the quality of his service is perfect. Perfect. Notice a comparison uh, in this passage between the Old Testament priests and Jesus. Verses 24 and 25, we see that there were Many, many, many Old Testament priests, but only one New Testament priest. Verse 27, there were many, many, many Old Testament sacrifices, but only one New Testament sacrifice. Verse 26, Old Testament priests were sinful. Jesus was not. Verse 28, Old Testament priests were weak. 
Jesus was perfect. Perfect. And this means that the quality of Jesus' priesthood is superior to uh, the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament. And in at least a couple of ways. To begin, it's superior because of the basis upon which it was founded. See, the Old Testament priesthood was founded on divine instruction. Exodus 28, 29, God instructed Moses to get Aaron. Uh, God uh, presided over a ceremony during which he never promised to Aaron or any one of his successors that they would be priests forever. Yet, God did make that promise to Jesus. He did. In verses 17 and 21, we see that Jesus' priesthood was founded on a divine promise, a promise that was entirely unchangeable, and therefore, according to one scholar, I love this, forever woven into the very fiber of the universe, making Jesus, as we see in verse 22, the guarantor of a better covenant. New covenant, Jesus high priest, way better than the old covenant and the Levitical priesthood. So the quality of Jesus' priesthood is superior because of the basis on which it was founded, namely God's inviolable word. That is Jesus. Oh, further, it's superior because of the person, the person to whom it was entrusted, that is Jesus himself. Verses 20 through 22 were written in such a way whereby the weight of that better covenant falls entirely on Jesus' shoulders, so that in verse 25 we can read, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, speaking to the quality of his priesthood. Since he always lives, a reference to the length of his priesthood, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus always makes intercession for those who come to God through him, and his intercession is perfect. I read a story from a couple millennia ago, uh, one of the early church fathers trying to uh, explain how Jesus intercedes on our behalf before the Father. He said, it's like a little boy who's, whose dad is returning from a distant trip, and he wants to, wants to present him with a gift upon his return, and so his mother says, why don't you go out and pick some flowers for your father, make a bouquet. And so the little boy goes out into the field and he starts picking flowers, picking flowers, picking flowers. He gets back to the house and he hands them over to his mother who then takes the flowers, pulls out the thistles, pulls out the weeds, pulls out the nettles. So they're an acceptable gift to dad when he gets home. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us. He takes our imperfect prayers. He pulls out all those imperfections, and then he presents them like a beautiful bouquet to our Father. So his intercession is perfect, and further, it's also effortless. It's effortless. I want you to listen to this. It, I, I found it to be very helpful. Uh, one, one scholar put it like this. 
Jesus is not to be thought of as standing ever before the Father with outstretched arms like the figures in the mosaics of the catacombs and with strong crying and tears, pleading our cause in the presence of a reluctant God. Oh, Father, you can tell that, tell that they're going to, uh, well, I don't know. Santa Claus gave me the naughty and nice list and I don't know. Oh, but Father, you must... No, that's not how it goes. He says, no, rather he is a throned priest king, right? When he ascended into heaven, he then sat down at the right hand of the Father, which is a place of absolute authority. No, he sits throned as a priest king, asking what he will from a father who always hears, always grants his request. And then he concludes, our Lord's life in heaven is his prayer. There's a sense in which he doesn't have to open his mouth. His presence alone intercedes on our behalf. So what child is this? He's the great high priest whose unending and untainted service exceeds that of any Old Testament priest, which leaves us only one question. How did he do it? How did he do it? Well, the answer is at the end of verse 27. He did it at Calvary, where he served as both the last officiant and the last offering for sin, thereby once for all. You see it there in verse 27, once for all turning the barrier between God and man, the cross, the symbol of sin and death, uh, uh, for which imperfect priests and and animal sacrifices had had provisionally atoned uh, for long ages. He, He turned that barrier into a bridge, a bridge from us to God. And so, thus ends 2023 on 123, 123. And 2024 begins tomorrow. And here's your assignment for next Sunday and every Sunday thereafter, as often as you come into this room, I want you to reflect on the cross. I want you to look at it and realize as lovely as that is, I mean, Chris just did a wonderful job at making that cross. It's not a decoration. It's not a part of the decor. It is rather a symbol. It's a symbol of the thing that that separated us from God. God's on the other side. I, I can't get to him. Because this is in the way. But you know, when Jesus, as the last officiant and the last offering, put himself on that cross and paid the price for our sins, that cross, you know what I wish I could do? I wish I could grab the bottom of this panel and pull it up. It became a bridge. It went from being a barrier to a bridge, a sturdy bridge, not the toilet paper bridge at Jason Oaks 
told us about a couple of years ago, but a sturdy bridge and an open bridge, no gate at the front of this bridge, and a free bridge, no toll booze on either side. The barrier became a bridge. What was once a symbol of death is now the symbol of life. And that by way of Son of God, Son of Man, revealed in flesh and his permanent and priceless work as our last great high priest. But you'd never see that cross again in the same way. That was made for us. But when Jesus took it, it's as if the bottom of it was pulled up and it became a bridge and it made a permanent way for us to the Father. Please pray with me. Jesus, as we end this year, we do so by thanking you. Thanking you for making a way, a bridge, to get us where we could not have otherwise gone. From death to life, from sinfulness to holiness, from opposition against you to union with you where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. In the new year, may these things mark our lives, even as we point others to the bridge over which they're found. We pray all these things in the only name by which we can pray, the name of Jesus, amen.